0: Hello from Gilbert and Tobin, I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world.
1: Today, priorities on parade. We talked to Elizabeth Avery about the ACCC's enforcement priorities in a time of change.
2: Over Rod's tenure, the the mantra of the ACCC was making markets work. I think we might see a different emphasis in Gina's initial remarks at CEDA. She focused on the role of the ACCC in maintaining effective competition, which is a little bit different to making markets work. It could signal something quite different there.
1: But first, Matt,
0: why is this episode called Priorities on Parade? What does that mean? I don't know what it means, but it is the name of a 1942 Paramount studio film uh, about a swing band that goes to work at a military aircraft factory. It's one of more than 100 films that were directed by Albert Regal. Oh, I have so many questions, but why don't you just tell us what's been happening around the grounds? Well, without spoiling the interview, one of the C's priorities this year has to do with motor vehicles, as generally the second most valuable purchase most people will make, as well as the purchase most likely to feature in a major Hollywood film franchise. Mm-hmm, of course. And maybe the most valuable when no one can afford to buy a house anymore. Yeah, maybe. And the ACC has made good on that priority with its first new court proceedings and its first court appeal under Chair Gina Kaskotlieb both involving motor vehicles and dealerships. So it's like a franchise franchise. It is. In the new case, the FCC is alleging that Honda misled customers when it told them that a couple of its dealerships had closed, and so anyone who needed their Honda to be serviced would have to take it to another authorised Honda dealer. But nobody has to get their car serviced at a dealer, do they? And It's often cheaper to go somewhere else. It often is, and here the dealerships hadn't closed at all. They'd just stopped being authorised Honda dealers. They were still servicing all kinds of cars. But Honda had made a big effort to steer customers to its own dealerships, until ACCC Enforcement Commissioner Liza Carver said not so fast. She must have been furious. You know it. She also pointed out that there's a new scheme coming that'll make sure that independent repairers can access the information they need to service and repair any kind of car. That would include technical manuals and schematics, but also now software updates and access codes. And that info is getting more important, isn't it, as cars become more complicated and computerised? It is. But from July, if you've got a couple of Honda Civic EJ1s that have been damaged in a hijack attempt, who doesn't? Or an S2000 that needs a new engine, you should be able to take it anywhere. Oh, good. Well, what if you've got a Mazda? I do have a Mazda, and the ICCC is appealing a recent federal court decision that found Mazda had been misleading and deceptive, but not unconscionable, when it told customers that they couldn't get a refund or replacement for their faulty cars. Instead, it said they could only get their cars repaired, even though some of them had already had their whole engines replaced, and more than once. I seem to remember Ford paying a $10 million fine for the same sort of thing. Wasn't that unconscionable? You're right. Uh, In 2018, Ford admitted to unconscionable conduct after it refused to give refunds or replacements for cars with transmission issues that it knew all about and had discussed with its dealers. But Mazda didn't admit anything like that, and the court found that this was appalling customer service but didn't reach that threshold of unconscionability. So the ACCC is appealing that part of the decision. And what did ACCC Enforcement Commissioner Liza Carver say about that? She said that Mazda had given its customers the runaround.
1: Not that it had taken them for a
0: ride or that it was highway robbery perhaps? No, but she actually said the runaround and that's what the court said too. (laughs) But it'll be interesting to see how the appeal goes. Um, It's often hard to tell whether a judge will find something unconscionable. It can't just be appalling, of course, it has to be so far outside societal norms that it offends conscience. The ACCC loses, it could give them another reason to argue for a new law against unfair practices, which is meant to be a lower threshold. Are you going to spoil all of the priorities? No, let's park this one for now. All right, what else have you got? So across the ditch, the New Zealand Parliament has passed a bunch of changes to their competition law. The main one is a new section on misuse of market power, which swaps out the old purpose and take advantage test for a new test of purpose or effect of substantially lessening competition. That sounds a lot like the change Australia made a few years ago after the Harper review. It is very similar. And New Zealand had its own line of cases on the old test and it held its own inquiry, but they also looked at what had happened here in Australia. Mm. And there is a framework for aligning competition law on both sides of the Tasman where possible. The new bill also allows the Commerce Commission to authorise cartel conduct and to give provisional or interim authorisations like the ACCC can do here.
1: It sounds like they're doing a bit more aligning than we are.
0: They have been so far, but one area where we could stand to align with them a bit more is in their cartel provisions, considering the hammering that ours have been copying lately.
1: Yeah. Kate Morgan SC told us that it was basically impossible for a jury to navigate those very complex provisions. And Justice Wigney said that the people responsible for drafting them had approached their task, and I quote, as if it were akin to producing a cryptic crossword, unquote. And he also said that they were, again, I quote, prolix, convoluted, and labyrinthine.
0: Yeah, it's an extraordinary judgment, isn't it? And the cartel provisions in the New Zealand Commerce Act are a lot less like those things, and they already have some of the broad defences that the Harper Review recommended for Australia, like for collaborative activity and supply arrangements. Hmm. The criminal side of things is also a bit simpler, especially when it comes to the criminal fault elements that have made our law even more complex.
1: And how has that played out in front of a jury?
0: It hasn't made it to a jury yet. The criminal provisions only took effect last year and they came with some pretty great informational videos that the Commerce Commission has put together. Have a listen to this. We'll bid crazy high, lose it. You guys get the job on the fair margin. Then we return the favour next time. When one. Sweet. You've just witnessed a crime. Price fixing. That's great stuff. Do you remember the short film the ACCC made, Ben? I do remember the marker, which the ACCC commissioned in 2012. I don't think it made any of the short film festivals that year. But, you know, it could have won in some of the technical categories. It actually had pretty good production values.
2: You've got a bit of price fixing, some government tender
0: rigging and dividing up the territories. It sounds like you're running a cartel. Jesus. Is
1: there any prospect that our cartel laws will change?
0: The current laws don't have a lot of fans, but there isn't a plan to change them at the moment. Actually, ACCC Chair Gina Kaskotlieb left the door kind of open when she spoke at Senate Estimates recently. She agreed the provisions are exacting with a lot of different elements, but she thought they were capable of being proved and the ACCC had the expertise to handle them.
1: We recognise the burden of those elements, but we consider we have uh, both the legal experience and the investigative experience to be able to discharge that, but we will watch it carefully. We'll all be watching that carefully, but this seems like the perfect time to get into our deep dive. Matt, you've spoken to senior partner Elizabeth Avery about the ACCC's enforcement and compliance priorities for the coming
0: financial year. I have. So then ACCC, Rod Sims, announced those priorities at a recent event hosted by CEDA and sponsored by Gilbert and Tobin, which has become a bit of a tradition. And now C Chair, Junica Scottlieb had a brief closing comment.
1: So these are the 22-23 priorities. I'm obviously announcing them as on behalf of the ACCC, even though I'm not going to be here for that period of time, it's still, this is very much the priorities as set down by the ACCC. And we do our usual consultative process to work them through. So this is a baton change moment for the ACCC. We maintain the same clear purpose, the same pace, and a high-performance, capable, and diverse team committed to the safety, interests and welfare of consumers and the maintenance of effective competition across the Australian economy. Was it a baton change or a hospital pass, that one?
0: (laughs) I'll I'll leave it to Elizabeth to take care of the play-by-play. Let's take a listen. Today, I'm joined in the Sydney studio by partner Elizabeth Avery, who leads the competition and regulation group here at Gilbert and Tobin. Elizabeth, thanks again for joining us on another wet day on Gadigal land. Now, the ACCC has been announcing its enforcement priorities in different ways since it first began. This time, the circumstances are a bit unusual in that the priorities for the year were announced just a couple of weeks before the new chair took over. And we might talk in a minute about whether that makes a difference. But first, let's start with a quick look at the priorities themselves, which now former ACCC chair Rod Sims announced at that Cedar event in March. What can you tell us about those?
2: Well, the ACCC's enduring priorities don't change much from year to year. So they're cartel conduct, anti-competitive agreements or practices, misuse of market power, product safety, focus on vulnerable or disadvantaged consumers and practices that targeting them, and conduct that impacts Indigenous Australians.
0: Right, and that should be enough to keep them fairly busy. But what then are the additional priorities that are more specific to the coming year?
2: There's a heavy emphasis, I think, and I think Gina emphasised this in her remarks at CEDA, on some of the outworkings of the pandemic and the crisis and the volatility and uncertainty that comes with that. So that coupled with the recent floods has meant that there's probably a focus on supply chain issues in the priorities. There's a focus on environmental claims. I think everybody is now focused on the impact of climate change and making sure that consumers are not misled by greenwashing claims. That's a big focus. Another thing that jumped out on me was access to essential services. Energy and telecommunications were two things called out, but then also payments. That was really interesting because it brings in some of the new digital platforms issues and, in particular, some of the issues around mobile wallets. They were all really interesting issues.
0: And, of course, there are the formal priorities themselves and then there's the speech that the chair gave, which added a fair bit more colour and detail And it also suggested a longer-term agenda that might involve some changes to the law, including the merger reform proposals that you spoke about on the podcast last year. Has anything changed since then?
2: Well, there is, of course, a distinction between the ACCC's priorities and the chair's agenda. These can be different. So I would expect the chair's agenda to change over time. But on merger reform, Rod Sims launched an important debate on that topic He suggested that we move from a primarily informal and voluntary system to a more formal process where you have to notify above a certain threshold and you can't complete until approval. That is, it would be mandatory for certain mergers to file and suspensory of the transaction. And if the ACCC says no, then you'd have to prove to the tribunal why the ACCC was wrong. Possible changes to the merger test were also proposed so that a merger could be blocked if there was a possibility that is not remote, that it would lessen competition, which is a lower standard, and some other changes for acquisitions involving digital platforms. Rod has argued passionately for these changes. He thinks they're necessary, and I'm not sure he'd really consider they were up for debate. But Gina says she welcomes the debate and will be an active participant, but she may feel differently about the proposals.
0: Do you think any of those proposals are more likely to get traction than others going forward?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I guess if I was a betting person, I would say the one that there'd be more focus on was whether a mandatory and suspensory regime is appropriate. And at a recent conference of the ICN in Berlin, the chair noted that there were practical challenges with merger parties pushing the boundaries of our informal system, and that has prompted them to consider the need for change, but that ultimately that issue was a matter for government. Notably, she didn't comment on any of the other proposals. So there's still very much going on in this space.
0: Now, you mentioned digital platforms, and that has been a big part of the AC's work over the last few years. It is a priority for the coming year as well. And it's another area where the AC has some proposals for law reform. How do you think all that is going to play out?
2: Yes. Well, digital platforms are going to remain on the agenda. There's no doubt. They're prevalent in everyone's lives. There are lots of different issues that they give rise to, and they're a big focus of other competition agencies globally. The ACCC is concerned that its existing ex-post enforcement tools can't address certain aspects of digital platforms markets. So some forms of anti-competitive conduct data advantages, certain consumer harms, unfair dealings and transparencies, as well as acquisitions are sort of a focus on whether they can adequately enforce those issues. They've proposed a range of different tools of a more ex ante or ahead of the conduct nature, so to regulate the conduct rather than just prosecute it after it's occurred, which might be used to address particular issues or circumstances. Some of these are legislative obligations and prohibitions, Some include codes of practice similar to the Media Bargaining Code, rulemaking powers that would achieve objectives or promote competition after a finding of harm, so rather than having to go to a court. Also an access regime for essential services including access to data. I expect that this will be a priority for the ACCC but it will do so in consultation and collaborating with other regulators as it doesn't make any sense for the ACCC to go it alone given the multi-jurisdictional nature of these issues. At that ICN conference, Gina really did emphasise the importance of cooperation between the regulators internationally. It was a focus of her whole speech, but particularly in the context of digital platforms. Gina does also have a highly collaborative style, so I expect that style will work very well in the context of international. international multi-jurisdictional matters and coordinating in relation to digital platforms. She, um, at that conference, emphasized the benefits of cooperation in resulting in investigation efficiencies and reducing the burden on business, which is quite a different emphasis, I think, to um, past reasons for cooperation provided.
0: It is. Yeah, one thing that struck me in the digital platforms proposals that's come up in the speeches and also in other reports over recent times is this idea of a new prohibition against unfair practices of some kind, which I know we've heard about before. I don't think that we've got any more detail about it since the last time we heard about it, but that seems to be something that's, that's, that's yet to come. I wonder if it will over the next period.
2: Yeah, again, I think it's one of those things that I think a lot more work needs to be done to build the case for the need for it. The ACCC does have quite a good arsenal of different prohibitions it can rely on to deal with unfair conduct, actually. And to suggest that there's conduct that's not unconscionable, that's not misleading, that's not a misuse of market power, that isn't an anti-competitive agreement, but is somehow still an unfair practice, I'm still struggling to work out precisely what that would be.
0: It might have got lost in the dissolution of COAG and its replacement with the National Cabinet. I think one of their subcommittees was looking at it, and now they're not anymore. So that might take a while to get back onto the agenda. So we've got a pretty good idea of what the ACCC's priorities are, and they've always been good at communicating those. But there is a change in leadership at the ACCC, which happened just a couple of weeks after the priorities were set out. I guess that's not the usual timing, but there's always going to be a period of transition between the chairs. To what extent can we expect any sort of rebalancing of those priorities now that there is new leadership at the top?
2: Yeah. Well, of course, the new leadership isn't just Gina Cascotley, but it's also Liza Carver, She's the Enforcement Commissioner and has very strong private practice credentials. Also, a former g partner, Jennifer Barron, has previously gone over there as Deputy General Counsel, heading mergers, exemptions and digital. Between the three of them, I expect that to bring quite a significant focus on legal and practical skills that have been honed over decades, representing clients, and they'll use them in a way that aligns closely with the ACCC's priorities. So I don't expect to see a huge change right away, but there will be a rebalancing reflecting the chair's view of the world and her skills and experience. But I do think we'll see a a new focus in the court cases the ACCC brings and the way that they are run. They won't be afraid to bring complex competition cases in the right circumstances, and they'll be very clever about them. I think an interesting difference in emphasis might be that over Rod's tenure, the, the mantra of the ACCC was making markets work. I think that was really, he he announced that in his first speech at the Law Council back in 2011. And that's really carried through the way the ACCC has conceived of its role. I think we might see a different emphasis in Gina's initial remarks at CEDAR. She focused on the role of the ACCC in maintaining effective competition, which is a little bit different to making markets work. It could signal something quite different there.
0: We have a crystal ball that we use sometimes on the podcast. If you were to look into that to next year's enforcement priorities, is there anything you'd like to glean from the admittedly cloudy crystal ball that we have?
2: I think that the outworkings of the pandemic and the floods and the related supply chain issues of those two forces coming together and the war in the Ukraine they will combine to create some pretty significant global problems. Not everything is a competition problem. I think it's important to remember that. But there may well be competition problems that arise out of those forces. And to the extent they do, I think there will be things that the ACCC really cares about and makes priorities.
0: It'll be fascinating to see how it unfolds this year and next year. Thanks so much for coming in and helping us make sense of these very interesting times. Thanks, Matt a great interview.
2: I guess the
1: ACCC is a pretty big organisation now with a lot of corporate history and corporate memory and its own
0: momentum. Yeah, so it will take a while for any impact of the new chair to be fully felt in the priorities. Did Elizabeth give the crystal ball back? She gave it a bit of a polish, which was nice. So what have you got for us? Well, ACCC Chair Gina Cascott leib got an interesting question in Senate estimates from the committee chair, Senator Paul Scar, about the way she'd approach law reform as chair of the ACCC. Sounds like musical chairs. Yeah, there was a chair in every chair just about. <laughs> Senator Scar asked whether the ACCC would strongly prosecute the case for a particular reform or whether it would take what he called a more objective stance in providing a view based on consultation and stakeholder engagement. Oh, that sounds like a full toss. Where did the ACCC chair put it? Uh, pretty much over the grandstand, as you'd expect, she said that both ways were actually objective. Um, the ACCC will form a view based on its own experience and consultation, and then prosecute that case, particularly where they feel they can't fulfil their statutory mandate or what the community looks at them to do. And I guess that's implied in any call for reform, but it's interesting to hear the chair tie it back so directly to those community expectations.
1: Mm, that's been the catch cry, hasn't it, since the Banking Royal Commission.
0: But what does the community Look to the ACCC to do? It's an interesting question. If you look at the annual report, uh, when people contact the ACCC, it's usually about misleading and deceptive conduct, as well as consumer guarantees and warranties, especially when it comes to electronics, consumer white goods, and the automotive industry, as well as tourism and accommodation in this COVID era.
1: And the community here isn't just individual consumers, is it? It's also consumer groups, small businesses, and even big businesses, and everyone else who has a view about what the
0: ACCCC should be doing. That's right. And it's, it's hard to speak for all of those different voices, but you'd have to think that right now the community might just care more about petrol prices, grocery prices, you know, getting their car serviced, trying to do the right thing by the environment, and maybe even being treated fairly, and perhaps not as much about the merger clearance process being formal or informal, or who's got the burden of proof.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that's a barbecue stopper, depending on what sort of barbecues you go to.
0: I feel like I haven't been to a barbecue in years.
1: I know, and we've been fishing for an invite for a couple of seasons now. Anyway, remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes.
0: And we've got some great guests still to come this season, including Dr. Catherine Kemp on the clash between competition law and privacy and Special Counsel Tanya McDonald on dawn raids and cartel enforcement. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Until next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.